I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. going happy end of March as we are moving into spring and depending on where you are in the world that may mean different things for you but for us here in the United States um, it means that we're we're getting some sunshine we're getting some flowers I'm out here in Colorado um, and I'm very much enjoying we've had a few sunny days of like 60 degrees so far and I've really really been enjoying that new weather I hope that whatever uh, you know the uh, the weather is bringing for you wherever you are you are excited about it I always find that at the turn of the seasons I get very excited and inspired um, there's always that day for every season when you walk outside and you first smell the new season on the air. I don't know if that makes sense to to all of you, but I hope some of you know what I'm talking about. The first time that you smell snow, the first time that you smell um, like spring and the flowers, the first time you smell that like fresh cut green grass smell of summer um, and, and the woodsy smell of, of autumn. I know throughout human history, people have celebrated like the, the solstice and the, and the equinox and all of that. Um, and there's definitely something to the change of the seasons that just speaks to human experience. And, um, and I don't know if you can hear me kind of moving into this sort of magical space, like the Year of Writing Magically workshop, uh, go to yearofwritingmagically.com if you want to see if you can uh, apply for it when it opens up um, next year. I'll put you on a mailing list and I'll, I'll let you know when the application's open. Um, it's amazing. It's wonderful. I am both a workshop leader and participant, uh, which is a really interesting kind of balance because as the workshop leader, I know that everything I'm saying works. I know all of the ways to whistle for your creativity to come to you. We're in the magical discovery phase, which is so much fun. Um, I know how all of that works. I know the strategies. I know it's showing up at the same time every day if you possibly can. I know that it is um, thinking about your muses, making space for them, building a shrine for them if you can, creating whatever you can, either mental and emotional space or like a physical space in your home. Um, there are so many different things like watching movies and reading books and, and gathering a reading list of, of stories that you want to engage with to kind of help you get in that creative space. Um, all of these things like collages, soundtracks, all of these things are magical. I know how they work. I've used them a million times every single time I've done them before I've done them. I have doubted their power. I've doubted their power. I, I hate collaging. I always hate collaging. I resist collaging, but when I do it, super freaking powerful. So as the workshop leader, I know exactly how all this works and basically just shut up and do what I say. As a workshop participant, I have my doubts. Like, is it going to work this time? It's worked before. Does that mean it's going to work again? Because I'm in this magical space. Now, I've spent the last 20 years developing the craft, right? The science of storytelling. I've put it all into this thin little volume where I elegantly explain the basics of how story works. I have that. It's something I could put my back up against. And I've been doing that, teaching that effectively for the last like 20 years. Um, and now I'm back into the writing side of things, into the magic side of things and trusting the magic. Like I can trust the craft 
all like it's it's so evidence based. I I have done so much work with it, but I don't trust the magic. I don't trust my muse to show up. I don't trust that if I do these things that I've done before that have always worked without fail, that this time they won't fail me. I have such a paucity of faith, I cannot even explain. So I feel like this time period right now where I'm teaching this to my students and doing this myself as a workshop participant, that this is finally where the rubber meets the road and I just have to do the leap of faith. I just have to allow the creativity to come. So I'm doing all the things. I'm listening to my workshop leader. I'm doing everything she's telling me to do. I have a candle. It's a lilac candle that has the scent that my creative muses like. Um, I had this idea for a while that I have like one muse. Like, you know, Stephen King has the the boys in the basement. Jennifer Cruzy amended that to the girls in the basement. Um, I've always kind of um, nodded to that and been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, without the actual belief in the in the anthropomorphization of this idea of the the creative inspiration right um but again i'm reading big magic as part of this discovery process i think that everybody who is doing any discovery process like the beginning of their of their creative process should have you should have big magic at the beginning you should have how story works at the end these are the two things that you need the two books that you need to write big magic by elizabeth gilbert how story works by lonnie dianrich um but big magic is the bible for discovery and one of the things that elizabeth does which of course people have been doing forever is the anthropomorphization of the muse, the creativity that comes to you. Right. Um, and again, Elizabeth Gilbert is so comfortable with the magic and I am so uncomfortable with the magic. I'm comfortable with the craft, the stuff I could put my back up against, but I'm not comfortable with the magic. And, um, and I love how comfortable she is with this space, you know, where she, all of the stuff she talks about, I absolutely know I have experienced on different levels. Like I know this. And yet, like, because I can't mark it down to a science, I feel like I can't really trust it. But anyway, because I trust my workshop leader, um, I have been thinking about that today. And I've been thinking about all of the different kinds of muses that I have. Like, um, like there's a border collie named Max, who just goes and grabs things and brings it to me, like little shiny things. Um, there is a, a very light kind of pixie-ish um, sort of entity. Um, she's, I think her name is Daphne. Not really sure why she has a Greek name, if I'm really getting into like the classic idea of the muses. But anyway, um, and she is very light and floaty. Um, and really likes to bring the, um, the fun light stuff. Um, there's also like a, 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 an older woman. I can't say that much. She's probably that much older than me as far as like her energy. They're all way older than me, but like, you know, uh, I, I call her Roz. She like sits around. She smokes a lot of cigarettes. She's really angry. She drinks a lot of whiskey. Um, she brings me kind of the darker stuff. And so I'm, those are the three kind of entities that I've sort of, um, figured out like I've never actually named and identified the different energies creatively that come to me with different things um but the thing is that I think that like all of these muses have brought me a different idea and my workshop leader has told me that in two weeks 
I need to be able to say which one of these ideas I'm going to do. I am not suffering from a lack of ideas. I am I am suffering from a lot of different ideas, but none of which I'm really all that like attached to. Like they're all sort of floating around. I'm like, yeah, that could be good. And that could be good. And I could do that. And I know how to do that. Um, but I haven't really chosen one yet. So I feel like all of these muses are sort of fighting for my attention. They are fighting for me to choose one that I'm going to dance with for this book predominantly. You know, each one will bring a little bit for each book, but there's a predominant energy. I'm fe- I'm not going to lie. I'm feeling that Ra's energy, deeply feeling that Ra's energy. But Daphne is is trying to get my attention right now. She is the one who's coming through the loudest. And right as I'm about to make the decision to go and dance with Roz, Daphne coming in with this bullshit, it's not helping me. It's not helping me. So I'm trying to figure all that stuff out. That's kind of what I'm doing now. But I have to tell you about the interview that we have today. Um, The interview that we have today is with Kim Sherwood. Um, Kim Sherwood is an author and creative writing lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. Her first novel, Testament, which came out in 2018, won the Bath Novel Award and Harper's Bazaar Big Book Award. It was long listed for the Desmond Elliott Prize and shortlisted for the Authors Club Best First Novel Pick. Um, In 2019, Sherwood was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. Her second book, Double or Nothing, uh, came out uh, in 2022. Um, in the UK. It'll be out April 11th um, in the US. Um, it is the first in a trilogy commissioned by the Ian Fleming estate to expand the world of James Bond. And her latest novel, A Wild and True Relation, came out last month and was described by Hilary Mantel as a rarity, a novel as remarkable for the vigor of the storytelling as for its literary ambition. So uh, as far as blurbs go, that doesn't suck. You can find out more about her at Kim Sherwood author.com. Um, but I really am so excited about this conversation. I think that y'all are really going to enjoy her. Oh, she also has a sub stack called the girl with a golden pen. You should check that out too. Um, really, really great. Um, but anyway, so I think that you're really going to enjoy this, this interview. One of the things that I want to do when I talk to writers is not necessarily ask them the same kinds of questions that they get when they're promoting their work, when they're promoting the book. I like to talk about who they are as writers and what it what it feels like to be a writer and how we all wrestle with these various things. Um, So the conversation is really about like existing in the world as a creative person. And we had such a great conversation. It was so much fun. I absolutely adore Kim. I think that you're going to really love her. I um, I read the Double or Nothing book, which is a Bond book. And I, if you've ever heard me talk about James Bond in any of my podcasts, you know that I have been um, horrifically dismissive of James Bond. And, uh, you know, Spy-Fi, first of all, like, is it's just not for me, but it's not a bad genre by any measure. Um, James Bond, I think, has historically had some... Um, some issues with, uh, with women, um, that have, that have kind of pushed me away from James Bond as a genre. But after having read 
Kim's book, the ways in which she is updating, you know, this franchise and bringing it into a new space with new characters. Um, I, I actually really enjoyed it. Um, so we're going to be talking about that a little bit. We're going to be talking about how much I really won't, can't wait to read her new book, A Wild and True Relation. Um, I'm very excited about that too. Uh, but here's the thing, just, you're going to love her. Just sit down, listen to this interview. She's fantastic. Um, and let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about uh, the magical side of writing. Let me know what you think about muses. Uh, Lonnie at LonnieDineRich.com. Reach out to me at any time. I would love to hear your responses. Uh, but for now, we're just going to go and hang out for a little while with Kim Sherwood. Kim, darling, how are you? How's everything going? You've been a little bit busy lately. Very busy. Um, I am promoting uh, two books. My latest book, A Wild and True Relation, has just come out here in the UK. And Double mm -hmm. or Nothing, the first in my series, Expanding the James Bond World, uh, came out here in the UK a few months ago, but is now coming out in the US and in Europe. So um, it's very full on, very fun. And um, I'm so happy to get to talk to you. This is uh, just such a highlight for me because I've been such a fan of yours for so long. Oh, I'm so incredibly flattered by that because you're like serious business. Like your first <laughs> book came out in 2018. Um, you've been shortlisted, longlisted, nominated for all of these awards. You got the job of writing the new Bond stuff from the official <laughs> Ian Fleming estate. Okay. Like you are serious business that you're a fan of mine is so incredibly, incredibly flattering. Um, but one of the things that I like, I want to kind of get started talking to you about is what it's like to exist in the world as a writer. Yeah. <laughs> like, you teach writing, I teach writing. We always kind of have to translate these things into, um, you know, into lessons for our students and explain yeah. to them kind of like not just how storytelling works, but what it's like when at any given moment in any day you could see something and it sparks an idea and then you have to write it down in your hand because that's all you've got. Like <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Tell me about how that is for you. I think it is a form of compulsion, that sense of mm -hmm. I have to I have to do this in order to be me. And when there are times in my life where I'm too busy to write, I do feel like I become a stranger to myself and mm -hmm. I just stop feeling um, right in my skin, in my body. And I know the answer is I've got to find time to write. And as you say, often it is just that matter of, okay, then five minutes on the bus, that's, that's going to be the time that I have today, but that will make me feel like myself again. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always been that way for me. You know, ever since I was a kid, I always said I I want to be a writer. And I just feel really lucky that nobody, when I was a child, said that's a silly idea or, you know, you'll need a, you'll need a plan A or whatever. Um, I yeah. come from a really encouraging family. And I always feel so grateful for that, that when I was like a precocious four-year-old who said I want to write books, my mom just said, okay, let's, um, let's get out the card and paper and staples and make some books. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. So ha have you always been a writer? I mean, I know that your first published book was 2018, but sure. like, have, you've always been in this pursuit. Did you do like, I don't know if they have MFA programs out yeah. there or yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I always wanted to write and always told anybody who would listen um, that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to write James Bond. So um, mm -hmm. doing well so far. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and then I studied literature with creative writing for my undergraduate and creative writing mm -hmm. for my postgraduate. And then I started to teach. So I've really never left school. I've just I've kind of oh, remained institutionalized um, within the world of creative writing. 
Oh, that's wonderful. And it's so like it, it is wonderful that you were able to write Bond because you have been a Bond fan since you were little. Yeah, that's right. And actually, for me, my writing journey and my love of Bond run parallel to each other because mm-hmm. as a kid, I would spy on my neighbors with a notebook and a pen and they were luckily <laughs> very tolerant of this. And I would I would go, there was this sort of back wall that connected all of our gardens and I would crawl along mm-hmm. the back wall really surreptitiously thinking nobody knew I was there. I'm sure they all knew I was there. They were just being really kind. Yes. And I would peek through the windows and I'd see what was going on and I'd make up these really elaborate plots and, you mm-hmm. know, usually involving some kind of murder mystery between all of my neighbours and I would turn them into stories. So my love of spy fiction and spy stories and James Bond really tied into my love of writing and observing the world as a child and I think trying to work out its mechanics and mm-hmm. what this adult life was all about that I was observing. Um, and I would I would get so involved, you know, what you were saying about living in your mind as a writer. I would mm-hmm. spend days and days and mapping out my character's homes. It would just be drawing diagrams of their houses and then putting my little toy furniture in, you know, where their sofa was, where their bed was, designing the rug. And I'd spend hours on this. And at the end of the day, my mum would say, OK, you know, it's time to go to bed. And I'd say, but I haven't even started playing. <laughs> my mum would be like, what's this? And I'd say, this is just the map of my story. <laughs> I would be so immersed in imagining these kind of parallel lives of these fictional people who took mm-hmm. up a lot of real estate in my mind. They really do. I mean, they become real, you know, to Absolutely. us and they live within us. It's, it's you know, kind of a, a multiple personality experience, I think, sometimes yes. because you have all of these people kind of living within your brain space, your roommates uh, in your brain, you know, which is always yeah. really interesting. Um, I'm interested in writing process. Like, I have been really thinking about that a lot. Um, you know, when I first started writing, I was very much like, you know, it's it's painful cancer and plotter. And that's what people told me. And you are one or the other. Right. Right. Um, And for anybody listening who is unaware of what that means, pantser is somebody who just kind of like, you know, starts writing. I've always been like that. I don't know what I'm going to write. And then I just start writing and I sort of find it as I go. Plotters are people who can lay out everything that's going to happen, you know, Uh. in a spreadsheet before they start writing. Now, of course, there's a wild spectrum in between those two places. Uh. Um, But if you were to place yourself on that spectrum, spectrum about where do you think you would be well i i'm almost a combination of the two so probably in the mm-hmm. middle because i i draw these kind of elaborate diagrams of the story and how the plot's going to unfold and mm-hmm. every time i draw a new diagram i say like aha eureka i've got it yes but with the mm-hmm. uh, with the kind of knowledge that the next day i'm going to throw it out because i think <laughs> that the more you write a novel the more the novel tells you what it wants to be and you get to know your characters and they say no i wouldn't do that or I, actually i'm going to make a different decision and so I'm constantly planning, but throwing the plan out. And <laughs> I, I used to feel frustrated by that because I'd think, oh, I thought I, I thought I had it. But then I realized yeah. actually that's just part of my process. It's kind of putting up scaffolding and it helps me feel safe and contained within within the process of not knowing because so much of writing right. is about being comfortable with discomfort, being you know right. happy not to know what's going to happen next. And for me, the sort of natural process is just to... Um, keep writing, keep learning about the characters and see where it goes. And I'm a massive overwriter, so I tend to have about mm-hmm. an extra 40,000 words that then need to be lopped off at the end. Um, <laughs> but I'm, in a way, I'm kind of learning a new process or I'm, I'm becoming two writers because mm-hmm. A Wild and True Relation, which has just come out here from start to finish, that's been 14 years. There were many um, oh, wow. kind of avenues that that novel grew down and didn't go anywhere. And so it, it evolved. 
Um, but with Double or Nothing and with the Bond series, I'm writing that to a much tighter deadline. And I'm yeah. writing it, you know, for the Fleming family. So all of my decisions mm-hmm. are run by them. So I yeah. can't I can't just sort of um say, Oh, I think I'll write I think I'll write Bond and I'll get back to you in fourteen years as to how it all pans <laughs> out. You know, that has to be an outline. Um, so I'm kind of yeah. learning to be a little bit more structured, a bit more planned, um, mm-hmm. and to kind of stick to the scaffolding a bit more. Although I, I still yeah. come up with new endings and, you know, shock everyone at the publishers and they say so you, you didn't tell us that this was going to happen at the end. Is that is that for real? Or? <laughs> yep, sorry. Yeah, I didn't know that that yeah, was going to happen. Exactly. Mostly like, uh, you know, in, in publishing, a lot of times, you know, your editor will be like, well, give me an outline. Give me an idea right. of what I can expect from this thing and everything. And so I've done that. And every single time I've done it, I'm like, you know, this isn't how this is going to end. Yes, because yes. I don't know how it's going to end yet. <laughs> and I go in with this wild, or I always have gone in with this like wild kind of let's just see what happens and then I'll fix it on the back end which I think can be valuable Um, but there are times where you really need to plan everything out I mean you having to run everything past the Ian Fleming estate to make sure that all of the story decisions that you're making kind of align with uh, with their with what they want out of these stories I think is really really interesting is it brings me in mind of creative delimitation right Mm. which is that when you are creating something, it is sometimes easier to have really firm boundaries than to have everything out in front of you and you can make as many choices as you want. Mm. Um, I have found myself in situations where I've had delimitations, where I've had things that I have to live within, boundaries that I have to live within. And I often feel freer within that space I feel like there's so like you know how a baby likes to be wrapped super tight and swaddled in order Mm. to feel comfortable and be able to go to sleep in order to feel safe I think there's something with that with creativity so considering that you on your own writing a novel on your own is 14 years whereas the bond (laughs) novel with all of those creative delimitations you've got the world that you're working within that has already been established you've Mm. got the Ian Fleming style that I'm sure you're trying to emulate while still updating it you know for a new audience Um, there's so many things that you're working within how did you find that experience with all those creative delimitations was that was that um dampening or an exciting experience for you a really interesting way to frame it i hadn't thought of it that way and and you're completely Mm -hmm. right because it is um it's a creative process within a set of boundaries and and usually my creative process um is is very internal and I keep to myself what I'm doing. I don't really share it with people. Mm-hmm. But this is the opposite. I, it's it's much more collaborative. Um, I feel really fortunate that the Flemings are so supportive and they say you're our writer. We chose you. We want your vision. So mm-hmm. they're they're really trusting and that you know I really draw on that. So my motto with these books is if if the Flemings are happy, I'm happy because right. you know there's there's James Bond fans all over the world and everybody feels like they mm. own Bond and in a way everybody does yeah. but but that means everybody yeah. has an opinion and so <laughs> you you're not going to please everybody all the time so my my audience really is the Fleming family um but when they first kind of invited me to write this they had two criteria one was to bring it up into the 21st century kind of modernize it mm-hmm. on the page right. and the other was to widen out the cast of characters so that we can have these mm-hmm. other double o heroes but it was completely up to me how I went about that. Mm-hmm. So my idea was that I would have James Bond missing from the beginning because I felt like, yeah. you know, I, I love Bond. I've always wanted to write Bond. But if you're if you're bringing in these new characters, it's very difficult when James Bond takes up so much of the spotlight. If he's there, oh, yeah. you look at him. 
So yeah. I kind of had to say to him, can you step out of the spotlight a little bit? Do you mind just like <laughs> stepping to the left so that these new characters could come in and have yeah. their moment? Um, so he's missing and these new characters are trying to find him. And he's he's both absent and present because he's there in flashbacks. He's there in memories. Yeah. But that was a really useful boundary for me in a way, because if the Flemings had, had simply said, right, we want you to update the world of Bond, up to you how you do it. Um, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have thought, well, then I'll I'll bring in these new characters. I probably would have stuck to a much more traditional Bond uh, kind of quest structure where you have him on yeah. his own out with a mission. Um, but the fact that they said, can you bring in more characters, that led me to think, well, then it's like an ensemble cast. And I love mm-hmm. ensemble TV. I love ensemble stories. Um, and then I began to think about it as kind of cooperative, almost like a socialist spy story, because you have all these yeah. double O's kind of working together as opposed to an individual mm-hmm. mission. So those boundaries completely informed how I went about it. And and I love these new characters and, and I hope that people connect with them. But I don't think I would have um, kind of almost given myself permission to to mm-hmm. embrace them so much. I think I would have I would have felt a little bit more beholden to sticking to the kind of bond narrative that we're that we're used to consuming. Right. I I love all of that. Like one of the things that I really love too is that Money Penny, who traditionally in the Bond universe was kind of like you know M's secretary, right? Mm-hmm. Had a crush on Bond, would would flirt, you know, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, and that was kind of like a, a like minor or more minor character, right? Yeah. Um, and here, you know, Money Penny is is basically running the show. Money Penny is uh, giving the assignments. Money Penny is, it. and so that was really kind of fun to see. Even the character that was brought in from the Bond universe was a smaller character that was expanded and empowered in a way that maybe that character had not been previously. Absolutely. So uh, what was your relationship with Moneypenny? I know there were a few like actual Moneypenny novels that had come mm-hmm. out. Were you working like how do you know what's canon and what's not? Like is it <laughs> is it all canon? Is it like the movies and the novels are canon? Is it just novels? How did you how did you work with all of that? Well, the idea of canon and Bond is so interesting because that there are fans who try to make it make sense that James <gasps> Bond has been Connery onwards. Mm-hmm. So there are fans who say, oh, yeah. James Bond is just a code name. Naturally, they're all different figures. You know, they try and make it all canon. Mm-hmm. Um, t- to me, that's just like an absolute um, head fuck. Excuse my yes. French. Don't worry um, about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the way I think about canon for, for, for this book anyway um is that I'm writing to Ian Fleming's novels, but I'm updating them in my mind. So I have my own kind of personal yes. headcanon because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to write in dialogue with Ian Fleming, but I wanted to make it contemporary, and that's what the Flemings wanted as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. then I had to come up with a version of the Fleming novels that take place in the 80s, 90s, 2000s and are continued in my stories. Mm-hmm. So I have my own version of, say, Moonraker, where instead of Bond battling... The Nazis just after World War II, he's battling neo-Nazis now, which, you know, yes. sadly realistic. Um, so it doesn't yes. take much to kind of <laughs> update Fleming in your mind. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then it's looking at, OK, if I'm if I'm bringing his world into the now, what can I do with those elements? And Moneypenny was a big part of that because she mm-hmm. is, I felt, long overdue a promotion. This is somebody who's been M's secretary um, for now 70 years in the literary world, 60 years in the cinematic world. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of that, we imbue her with a lot of authority as the audience. Mm-hmm. Lois Maxwell, who played Money Penny through um, through three Bonds worth of films, she's mm-hmm. kind of the longest running 
you know, Bond girl, if you want to put it that way. So right. as, as an audience, we imbue her, I think, with a lot of trust and authority. And it matters to us what she thinks. So mm-hmm. because of that, I felt like I could very naturally move her into a position of power. And she's mm-hmm. now head of the double O section. She's in charge of recruiting these agents. And she's she's come up with Bond. So she starts off as an agent runner in the field. Mm-hmm. He is the agent that she is running. Um, and they're, they're kind of stars and they've risen together. So I could also lean into that friendship, which is one mm-hmm. of the things I find most interesting about Bond. And, and it's, you know, it's emphasized in cinematic Bond is his friendship with Moneypenny because he's not really a man we see having friendships with many women. But, yeah. but that friendship mm-hmm. has lasted forever. And I, I'm really mm-hmm. intrigued by that. I absolutely love that. And I think that it is kind of like a warm transfer, right? So instead mm. of starting with all new characters, you right. do have this history. You're you're still embedded in the universe as it existed. And then we've got these three new characters, 003, 004, 009, right? Um, and I love the opening sequence where uh, 009, who is uh, Sid Bashir, um, is going in to save 003. And then, of course, now that's Joanna Harwood, named for... Uh, a screenwriter of some Bond films and the first woman I believe to ever write Bond. That's right. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. I love that. Um, and so now we've got Joanna Harwood and he's saving her and they have a relationship and there's all of this like emotional storytelling going on that there yeah. are these relationships that it's not just about the spy craft of it all, which is always very cool, mm. but that these deep relationships between people, the relationship between Money, Penny and Bond, the fact that Bond is missing. Um, then we've got Joanna and Sid and then we've got the other double O who is uh, Joseph Dryden, who is a black man who is also deaf um, and how they deal with his hearing loss and all of that kind of stuff while working as a double O agent. Um, really great diversity of perspective and cast in here, um, which for a bond, you know, kind of space is is a neat transition. Um so how was like creating all of these new characters for this universe that you loved so much? Um, was that daunting or was that just like so exciting? It was so exciting. It felt like such an, an honor really to kind of yeah. get to play in the sandbox in the first place, but then get to contribute mm-hmm. these new heroes to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I really wanted to move into that new space. And so the first thing I did was um, I actually went on MI6's website where you can see their recruitment pages, like their job adverts. Yeah. And they're really funny because they're things like, um, do you speak multiple languages? Do you like to travel? Do you have loose ethics? Maybe you'd be a good spy. (laughs) (laughs) But you can see kind of between the lines. They're really looking to attract people from multiple backgrounds with multiple perspectives. Because, of course, you know, it only makes sense. If if all of your spies look like James Bond, there's going to be a real limit to the number of undercover missions they can carry out. Um, But also a limit for you as a writer, you know, because Mm -hmm. you're only getting to write from one one perspective from yeah. one kind of worldview and experience. And I also wanted to broaden it out a little bit, you know, talking about playing spies as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. I would always play as James Bond. I wanted to be mm-hmm. the hero. I, I didn't want to yeah. be a Bond girl. And that's that's no insult to Bond girls. There are some amazing female characters in the legacy of Bond. But mm-hmm. I didn't want to be rescued. I wanted to do the rescuing. And yeah. so this seemed like an opportunity to kind of have this inclusive ensemble cast and hopefully invite more people in and invite more people mm-hmm. to see themselves as the hero. And then there's also that joy of ensemble casts of, of the relationships between the characters. And for mm-hmm. me, writing is so much about relationship. It's about 
the relationship between me and the reader. It's about the relationship between characters. And that's what ultimately all of my novels focus on is these central relationships and the conflicts yeah. between them. Um, so I could have um, Sid Bashir and Johanna Harwood who have this um, romantic relationship. They're engaged. Previously, Harwood was with Bond. That doesn't end well, which isn't really a spoiler because it's Bond. Um, mm -hmm. And he's Bashir's mentor. So then you've got an awkward love triangle in the workplace. Um, then you've got Joseph Dryden, who was a soldier whose um, uh, kind of love interest is Luke Luck, his second in command in the army, he comes mm -hmm. back in this story. So you've got all this history to work with and, yeah. and that gives you conflict and that's engine for story. So for me, that was just so kind of crunchy and delicious to get into. Oh, there's so much going on. And I mean, that's one of the things, especially when you're updating, you know, this this classic, you know, 1950s, 1960s sort of spy fi yeah. view of the world, um, which was, I think, predominantly like a kind of like an external action based sort of thing. And then to move us into these internal places yeah. where we these characters are very personally invested in each other, you know, in what they're doing, in the job that they have. Have. Right. Um, you know, I love I love the scene where Joanna is um, is is talking, is being uh, interviewed or, or interrogated by somebody. I can't remember what it was, but I remember her being like, "No, I'm really good at my job. I didn't I didn't allow myself to die. I didn't eat the cyanide pill yeah. because I'm super good at my job and I want to keep doing it." <laughs> right. And I was like, "Yes." I mean, you know me. I love a love story between a person and their work, and right. that's one of the things that I think comes through so well in this novel. Is is the love story not just between these people, but with the work themselves, uh, you know? Uh, um, and so, like, I just, I one of the things I just absolutely loved about it was that relationship to the work, you know, and oh. the interpersonal relationships and how personally invested everybody was. Uh, um, and that's what brought me in. Like, honestly, like, I've never been... I've never been pulled into Bond before, but I but the thing I think that is really great about the work that you're doing with it is that it does open up a space for someone like me, who's not a spy fi person, like yeah. who's never been that kind of person, to come in and be like, oh, I can identify with a woman in love with her work. You know, right. like I can identify with these different people who have these different experiences. We have LGBTQ character in Dryden, mm -hmm. which I absolutely love because that opens up a space for other people to see themselves within this world and see the great things about it and the fun things about it that may mm. have eluded them before. Um, so that's a big job to do. Um, you know, like when you first got this, you must have been excited. But it, was it also like really intimidating? It was. I mean, it was. I was helped by the fact that it was a secret, and I wasn't allowed to yeah. talk to anybody about it for, for the longest <laughs> time. It was really funny. I, I would uh -huh. tell my students. You know, it was during the pandemic, so I, we weren't meeting face to face. It was over Zoom, and, right. and students would say, "What are you? What are you writing?" And I'd say, "Oh, I'm, mm -hmm. um, I'm doing this commercial project." That was my code name for yeah. it. As if I right. had like a side hustle selling socks. I, I don't know what this commercial <laughs> project was in my mind. And I had a lot of American yeah. students uh, who couldn't come to Edinburgh, where I teach, uh, because of the pandemic. So they were all still in America. Um, and we were Zooming at you know, all odd hours for our classes. And mm -hmm. they got it in their heads that the only commercial project I could be working on as a British author was that I was ghosting Prince Harry's book. So they were just convinced. <laughs> and every single session, they'd be like, how's Meghan Markle? Like, I don't oh. know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> so when I could finally say yeah. to them, I'm writing James Bond. It was, it was a nice moment. Um, well, but that, what a wonderful way to have a personal experience that's aligned with the spy thing where you exactly. have to keep everything a secret. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> exactly. So that, but that really helped me because it took the pressure mm-hmm. off. Um, mm-hmm. And I could just imagine that I was just doing this for fun and it wasn't real. When it became public, that was such a surreal weekend because I, for some reason, I, I didn't really think anyone would notice or pay attention. Um, mm-hmm. And then suddenly it was in global news in you know, in newspapers around the yeah. world whose languages I couldn't even identify. And my face was really big in the paper and it was very <laughs> surreal. I'd never had an experience like that. And then uh, that weekend, one of the national newspapers here, they ran a double uh, page spread interviewing other writers on what they would do if they had the gig. So uh-huh. they're looking at this newspaper with all of my peers and these people I really look up to, you know, what they would do. Mm-hmm. And thinking, oh, these, you know, these are good ideas. <laughs> so then I had to kind of like take a step back from it all. Um, yeah. And just you have to keep coming back to what's my intention. And so I think that was mm-hmm. lucky that I was doing it in secret. So it was only my intention. Um, and and always coming back to kind of who are who are the characters and what do they mm-hmm. want. And it's interesting what you were saying about um, their competencies and their love of the role. I mm-hmm. thought a lot about why does somebody become a double O? Why does somebody become a spy? Um, yeah. today and and even actually going back to um, Casino Royale the first Bond novel at the end mm-hmm. of the novel Bond says patriotism is starting to seem a little old fashioned so that's the mm-hmm. first Bond novel Ian Fleming's already saying patriotism as a motive for being a spy is a little bit out of yeah. date and now we're 70 years on um, and I'm sure that many spies are motivated by patriotism but for, for these characters you know why are they doing what they're doing and I, and I thought mm-hmm. a lot about the um the sort of mentality that somebody has to be in to commit themselves to this life. You know, they have a life expectancy mm-hmm. of 45, um, and, but they're expected to be dead by that point and then retire mm-hmm. if they're not. Um, so who commits themselves to that? And, mm-hmm. and for Harwood's character, I, I thought a lot about this idea of a license to kill, which sounds yeah. kind of like fun and sexy on the surface, but, but really is an enormous kind of ethical burden and mm-hmm. responsibility. Yeah. And I wanted to get into that. So I thought, what's the opposite of a license to kill? It's the doctor's vow to heal anybody. It's the Hippocratic Oath. Mm-hmm. So her background is that she starts life as a trauma surgeon. Then something happens that brings her to Money Penny's attention and she becomes a double mm-hmm. O. So she has um, a personality that's capable of many dimensions. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really important for her in her, you know, her arc through the story. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it was those things that were the kind of keys for me. Um, and that also made me forget the pressure because then, like, as, as you know, you just get yeah. into the character and you just love writing the characters. Yes. Yeah. Once you slide into that space, it's yeah. a much safer kind of very private. It's just you and the work, you yeah, know, and exactly. that becomes sometimes getting to that space as a writer it can be really difficult because Absolutely. there are so many considerations. There um, are so many things. I'm, I'm teaching a workshop now where um, where I have a bunch of people in the first class that we did. I was like, we're going to talk about fear. We're going to um, talk about all of our fears. We're going to talk about all of the things that you go into and you're worried about. And then we uh, we we looked at them and we were like, all right, what are the ones that are built on outcome? Like, sure. how are people going to respond to this? Are people going to like it? Am I going to be able to sell it? Is an agent going to take it? Am I going to be able to do this? You know, depending on where you are in your career, you have so many like thoughts about outcome. Sure. And the thing is, the outcome is none of your business. 
Like that is not your job. The outcome is going to be what it's going to be, you know, and I know that sometimes I, I've had friends who've had certain books that have been like really hugely successful and yeah. other books less so. And the book that's hugely successful, like, eh, you know, whatever. I, w- I didn't really <laughs> care about that one. And right. then they'll have ones that are so deep and attached to their soul. And then that one doesn't necessarily do as well. And the thing yeah. is, the the wilds of the capitalist marketplace are not a thing that A, you have any control over or B, be say anything about you or your work yeah, you yeah, know it is absolutely. just that is a completely different space where you make the money that you need to make so that you can write another book mm, you know so absolutely. that you can feed your habit right um but it's so hard sometimes to get past all of those fears and I thought the one thing I want to do is sit down first day and be like let's have it let's Uh have all of them and so I listed out my fears too and I went through my list and then everybody came back with their fears and once we got rid of the outcome oriented ones you know there were all the ones like am I going to be able to write this am I going to be able to finish this is this something that I'm even capable of doing you know Uh Um, and one of the big things is like is it going to be any good you know, is it going to be good? Which again is something that I, as a writer, very strongly feel none of your business. Like <laughs> you can, good is not the goal. Done is the goal so that you can right. move on and create the next thing. But it is so hard to let go of that sure. because putting your work out there into the world is so incredibly vulnerable. You know, like you create something, you put it out there in the world and then, you know, a bunch of people on Goodreads are like, Nye. you know, and... <laughs> Which is why I recommend not reading reviews, too, to like everybody I know who publishes. Don't read them. Don't look at them. Just make the next thing. Yep. So as we're talking about creative processes, as we're talking about it, I kind of want to get back to um, to your process. I'm very interested. You write such different, you're writing these Bond novels, you're yeah. writing literary novels, you know, um, and the process that you have, not just the pants or plotter thing, but like the little rituals that you do. Like for me, like I had one book, I woke up at four in the morning every day, wrote until seven every Ooh, single right. day, and I got it done in 28 days. That was the shortest I've ever written a novel. It just Profit. moved like yeah it was amazing not the case typically with most of the stuff that I've written (laughs) where I you know and it's funny because every book I find my process will change like some of them I need to write early in the morning some of them I need to write late at night some of them I need to wear a particular pair of fluffy socks others I need this very particular kind of tea Mm. that I have to order on the internet in order to have like (laughs) so I'm curious about like I always love asking writers about their little rituals and do they change from book to book it's a really interesting question. I think um, I've never been a person who had to write at a particular time because mm-hmm. I've always taught. And as you know, your teaching schedule changes mm-hmm. time to time. So you, it's it's almost impossible to say these are my hours yeah. and carve them out. So I've much more been about in whatever time and space is available to me, I will fill that with mm-hmm. writing. Um, right. But I've, there are little things um, that I guess are almost like superstitions or they, they create mm-hmm. the headspace for you. Yes. Um, so cup of tea, absolutely essential. Um, if there's no tea, there's no writing. Uh, <laughs> and then it does vary book to book, actually, because for Bond, music has been really important. I listen to the, the Bond themes on repeat, um, ah. which is super fun for Nick and everyone else. Um, <laughs> but it's about getting into the right atmosphere, because as soon as I hear the Bond music, I start to laugh. And it becomes fun mm-hmm. and all of the mm-hmm. pressure and as you were saying all of the kind of outcome related fears it just goes away and mm-hmm. i am writing james bond and how fun is that so it, it creates that atmosphere um and then for 
uh, kind of late night, deadline is upon me, things are getting desperate. Of late, it's been the Hamilton soundtrack, which I find incredibly oh. motivating. There's, there's just yes. something about the kind of, we're going to war. <laughs> mentality right. about that will get me through a 4 a.m. writing stint. Um, mm. And then also it's about um, the space. So I found it increasingly hard to... Because I, I said before, I write in any time and space available to me. I think that used to be true and that used to work well. But as I get busier and there's less time and space available to me, um, I'm finding it harder and harder to just squeeze it into an hour or just to think, mm-hmm. well, I've got 20 minutes on the bus. Why not just do a bit now? Because yeah. my my mind is is fuller and fuller. So um, I'm, I'm learning in a way a new process or I'm trying to embrace a new process of carving out time and space where I'm unreachable. So for yes. a wild and true relation, um, I I went on a residency at Agatha Christie's house in Devon. Um, they let writers <gasps> oh go and God. stay in the attic there. It's a National Trust property. Um, and it's just amazing because there's no phone signal there. There's no mm-hmm. Wi-Fi. It's very remote in Devon. You can't get off the site on foot, really. You have to drive and I mm-hmm. don't drive. So when I'm there, I'm just there and nobody can reach me and nobody can need anything from me. And that's where I finished the book. And I, you know, as I said, I've been writing it for a long time. Um, but it was going to that space where it was just me, and I and I came up with this routine. So I would. It's funny. I'm feeling more relaxed even as I think about it. It was it was so peaceful and tranquil. Mm-hmm. And I would I wouldn't ever set an alarm, so I would just wake up naturally with the light. Um, and I would go downstairs and have breakfast on the portico, um, looking over the river. Um, and just read and then second cup of tea begin to jot down some ideas and then just move around the garden it's this beautiful big estate through the day as I as I wanted and that that was a big mm-hmm. part of it I think a big part of why it worked so well was in any moment I can choose what works for me and and I think for creativity if you I mean sometimes you just have to but if you say right here's my hour to be creative there's, there's a kind of pressure to that and there's a sense yeah. that it's going to end but if you say, well, today I might, um, you know, go and sit in the vinery for an hour um, or I might go and walk down by the river and then you're doing that and then you think, oh, my God, that's the answer to chapter 10. And then you race back <laughs> to your desk to write it down. You've created the freedom to do that. Um, yeah. And I found that incredibly powerful and effective. Um, and that's how I finished mm-hmm. A Wild and True Relation. And it's how I wrote 40,000 words of book two in the Double O series. And I wrote mm-hmm. those forty thousand words in two weeks, which is the most uh-huh. I've ever written in that in um, that space of time. Um, and I'd been so stuck with that book, and then I got there mm-hmm. and sat down in the sun and breathed out, and I thought, I've got it. So that's uh, that's wonderful. that's. I just need someone to give me a stately home. Um, yes, and uh, I need you know a huge amount of funding, basically. So I'd have to work mm-hmm. again, uh, exactly. and, and that that will be my new creative process. <laughs> I think that sounds brilliant. Uh, let's let's do a writer's retreat together because I definitely want to get in on that action. <laughs> I have had the experience, you know, where like I've been able to write in little like bits and stuff through the day, just whatever is available to you, especially, yeah. you know, when I was younger, I was raising two young kids like you took what you got, you know, right. But I have found through the years that I it's almost like descending a very, very long staircase. And you need Da-da. the time to descend into that space 
space. And then you need time to be there because that's when you write like you're on fire. Yeah. And then you can come back up and it allows you to be much deeper within the world of that. It ceases to be fiction. It is it is your transitioning into another world. Exactly. So having dedicated like I would find three hours is minimum for yeah. me to like to be able to descend that staircase, go into it and then come back. Um, and so I think that like every writer finds that I had a friend who just would like, you know, her kid was uh, um, like on the swim team and she would just sit there while he's swimming and just write for like, you know, 15 minutes here, 15 <laughs> minutes there. She was a plotter, though. So she uh. could like, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. And, and, and everybody, I think, has a different experience with that. Um, one of the things, too, that I always find we need to discuss, like whenever I'm teaching we need to discuss the role of inspiration mm. and and how that works. There's this kind of idea like that that sometimes gets shared like out in in sort of the societal you know zeitgeist of the the writer who will like be so frustrated because they're not inspired and they can't <laughs> write until they're inspired and yada yada. And most of the time we're not feeling inspired. Now my take on this is you can write when you're not inspired, but it's more fun to write when you are inspired. Absolutely. So instead of waiting for inspiration to come to you, go hunt that shit down, you know, uh, and things like music, soundtracks, doing collages. Uh, um, you know, there are a bunch of activities that you can do that kind of draw that creativity to you. Yeah. And I'm curious, what do you do for that? Do you have like certain things that you will do? You talked about the music, but things that you will do to kind of like bring the muse to you to oh. whistle for that creativity. Absolutely. And actually, this is how I became a fan of yours because of Jefferish oh. Media. And so um, mm -hmm. I had this, the job I had before now, I had this really long commute. It was I mean, an hour and a half mm -hmm. to get to work and an hour and a half back again. Um, and I would, I wasn't so loving the job it wasn't um yeah. i should say i loved my students but mm -hmm. the but it was a very stressful job and so yeah. the hour and a half's commute was quite draining both in terms of time and morale because mm -hmm. it was a long sure. a long time to spend getting to a place i didn't really want to go um mm -hmm. and i was trying to write as well um and i and i was really feeling like for me i think inspiration and mm, however you want to put it the morale or your your spirits mm -hmm. or your sort of internal mental landscape um, are very linked. And so I, I would think about ways to use that commute to kind of mm -hmm. call the muse to me, as, as you put it. Um, and so listening to Still Dead, listening to Listen Up A-Holes, um, How mm -hmm. Story Works, I felt like I was in company. And, you know, <gasps> I was listening to people talk about things that I love and things that make mm -hmm. me really happy to think about um, and things that for me are like you know for me thinking about story and character it's just like breathing so so to listen to you chat about it was it was mm -hmm. you know getting to be in company with other people who were on the same wavelength as me um and a lot of that was so helpful for you know for writing double or nothing because i was trying to think of um the 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 first stage of the book was coming up with this outline and the characters to show the flemings mm -hmm. Um, and it was actually listening to your episode on the character triangle that, w that was a big uh -huh. kind of um, motivator for me. And I got to class feeling so inspired. And while all my students were writing, I was writing on my lesson plan. I was drawing out your triangle <laughs> and I was mapping Bond onto it and thinking, what are his weaknesses versus his vulnerabilities? You know, and all of the I different characters. It. And so my notebook mm -hmm. is full of that triangle with me kind of working it all out. 
Um, mm. and, and a lot of times, you know, searching for inspiration or creativity is like that. You're looking for company. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Forster called it the echo chamber. You're looking for people who are in the echo chamber with you. Mm-hmm. Because writing is, in some ways, inherently a solitary pursuit. Yes. And I like that. I, but I'm I'm kind of cuspy, introvert, extrovert. Mm-hmm. I love being by myself for, you know, like I said, I was very happy at Agatha Christie's house for two weeks talking to no one. Um, <laughs> but I also love being in a room full of students. I love being with mm-hmm. other writers. I love being at festivals and um, literary festivals and talking to people about writing. That fills me with so much joy. So searching for inspiration is often searching out things like your podcasts or, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, books uh, that about writing that I feel like, oh yeah, that's how it is for me. And, and mm-hmm. or oh, I've never thought about it that way. That's a, that's a new way in. So if my current method isn't working, maybe I can try theirs. So it's always about soaking up that inspiration and, and looking for company, I think, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the what you're saying about collaging and things, that visual sense. I'm a very visual writer and that's always been part of my creativity. I like to draw and paint my characters rooms, locations, settings, faces. Um, and it's not that I'm necessarily especially good at it, but just being able to visualize it really helps yeah. me. Um, and I always realize when the, however you, you want to put it, writer's block or the inspiration is gone, I've stopped. I've stopped mm-hmm. drawing. I've stopped sketching. I've, I've stopped doing anything that is my natural way of being creative. And I'm expecting mm-hmm. myself to be able to sit down at a blank page and I'm saying to myself, well, come on then, write something. <laughs> One of the things um, I saw Neil Gaiman, he came to Denver last year. um, And so I went and and heard him speak. And one of the things that he said that I absolutely love is he would sit down every day and write like and have the writing time. And he's like, and it would be me and the blank page. And if at the end of the writing time, nothing happened, then that's fine. Like, that would be absolutely fine. I think I've heard Elizabeth Gilbert say something similar um, because you did your part. You showed up. Right. right? You told the muse where you would be, you know, yeah. and if they don't come, they don't come. Um, but you can't do anything else. It's yeah. you and the blank page. You don't have to write, but you can't do anything else. And I often find that there is this friction to um, especially when you're not sure where you're going next with the story or you're not sure about what's happening or if it's even something that's going to work because in the first 20,000 words, like I have had books, I've written as much as 40,000 words that I have just thrown away and never okay. touched again. Yeah, like yeah. I have half finished books out there that just were never going to work. And when you first start in a project before you get the click, before you know that this is going to be done, yeah. um, there is that sense of like, am I just wasting all of this time? You know, yeah. um, and I don't think writing is ever a waste of time no matter what happens with it because again outcome is not our business um but i think it's it's so interesting the ways in which you you can find an in-between space from that hard line of sit your ass down and write Um, and that kind of like wispy oh well when the inspiration comes (laughs) you can create then you know in which case with lives the way that they are you know you have to let the inspiration know that you are open and available to them Um, Um, because I think inspiration has rejection sensitivity I think the inspiration when it comes to you and you constantly flit it away because the time isn't right is going to be like all right look you call me when you want to hang you know <laughs> absolutely um, 
Yeah, so I feel like that is there. Um, but I find it so interesting, like the value of ritual in um, in just regular human life of doing things in a particular way, sure. that building ritual into your writing, I think, is one of the best things that you can do, you know, right. for that cup of tea or for the music that you're going to listen to or however you're going to do it. You know, um, there are so many different things that you can do, but having a little bit of ritual. So that's one of the things I'm having my students do as well mm-hmm. is like, think about the rituals that you can bring into your writing so that when you do these things you know this creative part of your brain is like oh we're playing now yeah you know? exactly and it's there to like serve you yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i think so much of it is about that sense of um being free to play and experiment and take risks and yes. part of there, there has to be a door open in your mind for that to happen and sometimes the door can get stuck and you know with a with a one true relation part of the reason it took so long from start to finish was because it really um it really broke apart. So I, I began writing it the second year of my undergraduate degree mm-hmm. um, as a as a short story written entirely in 18th century Devonshire dialect, which uh, you'll be shocked <laughs> to hear no one understood. So I rewrote it in modern English. Uh, and then and then I realized that the, the short story was chapter one and it wanted to be mm-hmm. a novel. And I thought it would be my first novel. Um, but I took it from my undergraduate to my postgraduate degree and I was... Uh, workshopping it regularly um, in all of my classes and with mm-hmm. all different tutors. And I was really young. I was only 22. And I went in with the mindset that everybody there must know better than me. They mm-hmm. were, seemed older and wiser and I looked up to them yeah. all. And um, so every workshop, someone would come out with a different idea. You'd, you know, they'd say, oh, what if instead of being set here, it was set over in this place? Or what if actually the central relationship was this thing? And each week I'd think, oh, they, they seemed really certain about that. Um, so I go back to the beginning <laughs> and I got myself caught in this loop of the first yeah. three chapters, endlessly rewriting. And it was mm-hmm. almost like, um, you know, like a sort of parachute material and people were putting objects on it all the time and weighing it down. And eventually it just buckled. And with it, my yeah. confidence and my faith in myself as a writer and in the story. And it, and it just broke. And I really thought I couldn't put it back together again. Um, and it was it's interesting what you're saying about ritual. I remember one night sitting by a fire and just trying to write with with a notebook and just mm-hmm. almost kind of pleading with the fire please do something magical like bring this back let me write and nothing mm-hmm. happened and i just ended up in such a state of distress because the door was closed the door was stuck yeah. closed and i was just banging my head against it um and the the sort of source for the novel um was uh, so the the for just to explain to people who haven't um, who don't know about it, um, the novel opens in Devon in 1703 in the night of the Great Storm with smuggling captain Tom West coming ashore in a rage. He believes mm-hmm. his lover Grace has betrayed him and following a confrontation, he leaves with her daughter Molly, who he raises as a boy uh, called Orlando aboard his ship. Um, that's not a spoiler. It all happens in chapter one. And uh, the rest of the story is her kind of search for justice and identity mm-hmm. and uh, uh, her desire to find out what happened to her mother. And she believes Tom West is this real hero in her life. And he's really um, mm-hmm. desperate that she won't find out the truth. So you have these two mm-hmm. characters kind of locked in this conflict. And then that narrative is interleaved with real life historical figures who visited or lived mm-hmm. in Devon who come together to kind of solve the mystery of Molly's life. So you have mm-hmm. um, people like Charles Dickens and George Eliot, Dr. Johnson and Hester Thrale coming together and kind of passing this story mm-hmm. down through the centuries. So 
it came it came to me and the story kind of was born in Devon when my family moved there um, and mm-hmm. just walking along the beach I saw this um, boathouse and I and I, I thought what if a woman lived there who was a writer and she wrote this diary and one day the smuggler who she was with thought that she'd betrayed him and he thought the diary was evidence of it um, and and the, sto- the whole story kind of came from there and mm-hmm. it was very much about um, my love of story, my, my hope is through this novel to kind of illuminate the women in history and the women writers in mm-hmm. history who've been cut out of the story um, and to kind of embrace that fantastic sort of adventure yarn, you know, the, the love of a good story told around a fire. Um, and it was actually the, the thing that kind of opened the door again was story, but it wasn't sitting down at a blank page and saying to myself, um, now you must write and, and mm-hmm. sort of weeping. Um, the thing... And this, like, it's kind of silly, but um, the thing that got it unstuck ultimately mm-hmm. was um, I I couldn't write and I couldn't write and I was I was with my mum and she asked me, oh no, I, I mentioned to her I'd just seen this film that I liked, um, mm-hmm. Vin Diesel's Pitch Black, and I and I said, uh-huh. oh, you know, it's this really good um, ser- uh, series of films, and my mum said, what's it about? And, you know, it's not really my mom's cup of tea, Vin Diesel's pitch black. <laughs> so I was like, oh, you know, do you really want to know? And she said, yeah, yeah, tell me the story of all of them. And we <laughs> sat in the garden with me telling my mom in great detail, including the dialogue, the uh-huh. plots of Vin Diesel's pitch black films. And by the end of it, my love of storytelling had woken back up again. Yes. And the door opened. Mm-hmm. And I've like, always been so grateful. I mean, I'm so grateful to my mom for many things because she's uh, mm-hmm. always been a champion of my writing. But just that afternoon with her saying, yeah, tell me in great detail about these or Pitch Black, <laughs> just <laughs> opened the door for me. And it, and it got I that, um, that. I guess, yeah, it, it said to the me's, I, I welcome you back again. I absolutely love that. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but retelling stories that you love, yeah. you know, retelling that to somebody or even just like writing down somewhere, that could be a huge way to like, you know, bring that back in yeah. because you're telling somebody else's story. So you can just sort of luxuriate exactly. in the story movements, you know, exactly. and now I'm going to have to write down. I've never seen those films. I'm clearly <laughs> going to have to watch. Um, but one of the things getting back to what you were talking about, about like being in a workshop setting, mm. right? Um, one of the things that I've recently discovered, I've spent most of my writing life with the um, idea that the more I get beat up, the better my work is going to be. Like the, mm. the more really harsh, like take no prisoners and even your mama's ugly, like kind of feedback that I get <laughs> um, will somehow make me tough. It'll make me a better writer. It'll toughen up my skin. The thing that I have discovered um, in recent years and that I've been like, like basically proselytizing everywhere is that you can receive feedback during your all of your process up until uh, you know you're in, you're deep in revision you've already finished your first draft but the only feedback you should receive from anybody is what's your favorite part uh, because that leans you into your strengths that leans you and the thing is that like playing whack-a-mole with your weaknesses is going to do nothing <laughs> it does nothing because you're always going to find something that from somebody's perspective is a quote-unquote weakness Absolutely. but your strengths are going to be universal your strengths people are going to be like wow your dialogue is amazing oh my god your emotional moments hit so hard you know how to bring out the pain because if you cannot be a sadist with your characters you'll never write the best (laughs) fiction you can write you have to put them through 
howl and be willing to do that. Right. Um, so there's so many strengths that people will have, like the the phrasing, the way that they use some words, like right. all of that kind of like there's so many different strengths. And if you don't focus on your strengths and you're just playing whack-a-mole with your weaknesses, all of your energy is draining out the bottom of this story and you're not giving it your whole self. So with my students, I have, I have this firm, what's your favorite part? Like you can get all the feedback you want. You can send in, you right. know, um, little like parts of the story. You can send in a scene or a snippet or whatever. The only feedback we are allowed to ask for or receive until revision, until a first draft has been finished, right. um, is what's your favorite part. And what this does for people is like open up themselves to understand their strengths to lean into those strengths um, and work with the best parts of themselves and it builds confidence which you have to have in order to create absolutely um, and so I'm basically like I am telling everybody this I am going worldwide I, I will <laughs> if anybody out there has a writing group I will come to your writing group and talk about what's your favorite part yeah. I think that it is, is such a revolutionary way of looking at writing workshops and writing feedback because we are so hard with each other um, um, out of love out absolutely. of love out yeah. of the desire to do better out of the desire to be better writers but I think you get it to be a better writer by leaning into your strengths and then you can worry like in the second revision after you've done your first revision and you've sent it out absolutely at that point you can get you you know more critical uh, feedback about maybe fix this maybe fix that but by the time you've gotten there you know what your story is you know what belongs in your story and what does not uh, and just because somebody is not you doesn't mean that they get it doesn't mean that they are your reader doesn't mean that they understand you there are people I love dearly who are not my readers who will never understand the work that I do. And that's okay. I'll go hang out with them and have dinner. But when it comes to my writing, I write for my reader, for the people Absolutely. who get what I'm doing and want that. So um, I'm bringing that into my teaching and into my classes. And I have to say, it's been revolutionary. Absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree more because when I was studying, um, there was this ethos uh, that, well, the phrase that was used was, we, we break you to make you. Which yeah. um, I, I think is probably also a torture method. So yes. <laughs> it's not really a way to help people feel safe. And mm -hmm. for me, being creative publicly, which is what a workshop setting is, 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 oh, yes. is this ultimate vulnerability in many ways, because you're trusting mm -hmm. people with something that's very fragile and embryonic and raw. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I always try and say to students, you know, you've, you've brought in a draft and let's all think mm -hmm. about it as that, that it's something that is precious and fragile um, mm -hmm. and something that we want to, you know, if, if you have ideas, if there's something you wanted to see more of, you know, if there was something that possibly confused yes. you, really helpful to share with the writer. But always remember to say what you love, because if, if you forget to mention it, they'll leave and they'll think, oh, well, well, mm -hmm. nobody mentioned the two characters um so i guess nobody likes my main characters i suppose i'll change that and it might be that everybody loved the characters and they just thought that that was a given so they didn't exactly. say so I'm, I'm always trying to say you know really emphasize um the successes and what's what's just firing on all cylinders about this piece mm -hmm. of work um and i'm often told that my uh kind of like my students will kind of laugh and say oh you're the you know you're the other sort of nicest um, but, but but I yeah I feel like there's a there's a power to positivity um, mm -hmm. that we want to receive, and so we should make sure other people receive it as well. If they've been so yeah. brave um, as to be vulnerable with their creativity and to open themselves up to other people, absolutely.
Yeah. And I mean, until and it is kind of like like a story has a setting point, Mm. right? It has a point where it's been written. You know what that story is and it has set. Mm. Once it has set, you can get critical feedback again. Always lead with what's your favorite part anyway. Mm. Like that is always, that is yeah, one thing that. I do in every single podcast I do, what's your favorite part? Like mm. it is it's such a huge thing for me. I love that conversation. What is the best thing that this particular piece of art has to offer? Mm. Um, and I think that those are really important conversations. Um, and because we spend so much time being so critical just in general in society today, we are an extremely critical society. Mm. We forget about that stuff. And I think that that can be hugely silencing in the, in the versions of your work before the setting point, before yeah. you, you get to where it's strong and you know what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, I'll often with my students use the image of the portcullis and say, mm-hmm. you'll work out in your in your workshop group and then later on down the line, you'll work out with your publisher, say, whose mm-hmm. feedback really resonates with you and is really helpful yes. for you and and let them in. And there are going to be other mm-hmm. people where you can just let let their feedback ping off because it's... Yes. it's it's just not helpful to you. And a useful way to mm-hmm. sort of approach it, I say to my students, is just to think, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate <laughs> that you put thought into my work. Your feedback yeah. doesn't resonate with me, so I'm not going to carry it with me, but I appreciate mm-hmm. that you're offering it. So you don't Absolutely. have to feel hurt about it or, or, mm-hmm. or wounded by it. If, if somebody, um, <laughs> remember in a workshop, um, this guy told me my work was a bit Mills and Boone. Um, <laughs> and... I yes, because God knows if you talk about like a woman's romance or a woman's emotions, then suddenly it's, and for anybody listening to America, Mills and Boone is basically British Harlequin. So it's it's supposed to be an insult. Um, yes, it was yeah. indeed supposed mm-hmm. to be an insult. Uh, yeah. But that was, I mean, you know, I was like 22 or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. at that point I was on my MA. Um, and that was one of those moments where I thought, oh, interesting. It's It's just that we don't resonate with each other. Um, right. And it's it's mm-hmm. fine that you feel that way because yeah. it, I, I don't have to sort of carry that with me or, or take it to heart or rewrite it mm-hmm. to try and please you. We just don't resonate with each other. And that's that's fine. And right. that's good practice for later on when your books are out in the world, because there'll also be readers that you don't resonate with or critics that you don't resonate with. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why it's helpful not to read reviews as well. But um, yes. you, you'll find your people, you'll find your audience and mm-hmm. and they will resonate with you and they'll go on the journey with you. Yeah. And, and you know, that's been a real learning curve with Bond in this quite amplified way because, you know, everybody has an opinion on, on Bond. Speculating on Bond mm-hmm. is, is a national pastime um, yeah. or international pastime. And <laughs> there have been people who, you know, I felt so grateful to the fan community because there have been people who have been really excited by um, what I'm offering. And then there are people mm-hmm. who say, no, I want it to stay the same. I don't like that it's changing. And that's totally fine. That's absolutely their right. They don't have to come along with me. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. Like when when I talk a lot about adaptations and the things, and I'm like, you know, the the original book, the original material has not been destroyed by right, this adaptation exactly, yeah, yeah. or by this new direction. Like you still have access to that. Um, but people do get very invested in a lot of these, you know, fictional worlds, and I, I understand that. I have sympathy for it. At the same time, like you're not losing the original. Go back and read the original if you're if you're that's where you want to be. Then go ahead and go back there. It's Absolutely. all available to you. Yeah. 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 Um, I've kept you a really long time because I'm fascinated and I love talking to you. But before we go, I want to get back to a wild and true relation because I have to tell you, 
It's not available in the U.S. yet. I have not been able to read it. I have just read like the first lines of the back cover copy. And my initial response was, yes, need this book. (laughs) So will you please talk a little bit? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it. When is it coming out in the U.S.? When can I get my grubby little hands on it? (laughs) Well, I will send you a copy tomorrow. But um, no release date in the U.S. (laughs) as yet. But people can order it from the U.K., um, okay. And I should say as well, there's a fantastic bookshop in here in, in Edinburgh called Lighthouse Bookshop. Mm-hmm. It's a radical bookshop, and um, I have a sort of deal with them where if if folks from abroad order the book uh-huh. from them and leave a little note when they check out saying they want it signed, I'll I'll go down there and sign it and write people a note. So oh, that's if wonderful. anybody does want to order it and support a good radical bookshop at the same time. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody yeah. who wants to order. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it sounds just wonderful, and I'm so excited about it. Thank you. Um, and I think it, it sounds like exactly the kind of thing. Like, the Bond stuff has never been my thing. I really enjoyed Double, Double or Nothing. That was Thank a you. lot of fun to kind of get into. Um, but this is absolutely right up my my alley. Um, so Double or Nothing, the new Bond book, is going to be out in the U.S. I believe the date that I saw was April 11th, 2023. Is that Yes, correct? that's right. All right. So everybody out there in America, you will be able to grab it then. Um, definitely, definitely recommend it. Um, so I have two more questions for you, and then I can finally let you go. But it's so much fun <laughs> no, talking to you. I'm really, really enjoying it. I know, seriously. <laughs> All right. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you, like as a fellow writing teacher, you know, um, is what is the most important thing you want your students to take away from your classes when you teach? Hmm. That's a really good question belief in themselves I, I love think it. a lot of people come um with you know uh you know they signed up to a writing course so they obviously have a degree of belief mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but it can be fragile sometimes and it needs a bit of encouragement um mm-hmm. and I actually just I I run this uh, kind of book social on zoom through my newsletter and I had a former mm-hmm. student come along um, and she started off by saying, I'm I'm sorry, can I ask a silly question? And I said, uh, for three years, I told you, stop apologizing for yourself. <laughs> and it didn't work. But mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm always trying to encourage people to have faith in themselves and their, and their capacity in the world, as well as writers. And so that's, that's what I hope I leave people with, belief in themselves. I love that. I think that is probably one of the most important things that a writer can absolutely have. Um, And my other question for you, of course, coming back to what's your favorite part? What Uh is your favorite part about being a writer? What is your favorite thing about this particular existence that we've chosen? (laughs) (laughs) That's a really nice question. Um, My favorite thing about being a writer is spending time with my characters in my mind. So it's yeah, it's going for those long walks and doing the dialogue out loud and having people pass me and think there might be a problem. Uh, it, it's it's when characters become so real that it is, you know, for, for a one true relation, it's like, you know, nearly half of my life I've lived with those characters. Mm-hmm. And to me, they're as real as friends and family, um, which, you know, listeners will understand because I imagine most people listening to this are, are writers or readers or, or lovers of stories. Um and it's it's such a precious and particular thing, that mm-hmm. relationship you have with people you've made up. Oh, I love that. That's perfect. That's perfect to end on. Um, all right. So where can people find you out in the wilds of the Internet? <laughs> in the wilds of the Internet. I am at Kim T. Sherwood on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a Substack newsletter, Girl with the Golden Pen, 
um, which is free, but then there's also a paid element with bonus content and Zoom book mm-hmm. socials and lots of fun things like that and signed merch and, you know, other good things. And it's, it's really lovely and building a really nice community there. So if anybody wants to come along, I would love to see you there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. It was such a joy to talk to you. I've had such a good time. You too. Thank you. Let's do this again. All right. Thanks to Kim Sherwood for hanging out with me today. And thank you for listening. How Story Works is part of the Chipperish Media Network. You can show your support at patreon.com slash chipperish. How Story Works is entirely listener supported. So thank you so much to everyone who contributes. Uh, That is it for this episode of How Story Works. Another episode will be back in your feed on the fourth Monday of next month. Now go write. 